Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome and thanks for tuning in to my show, America Can We Talk. Today we're going to talk about the University of Texas lefties threatening conservatives, the Army War College disinvites Raymond Ibrahim, who will join us live to talk about it, and Trump derangement syndrome, knitters and spitters, I kid you not, and last, Google threatens fair elections in America. And finally, I'll talk about why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk and to today's first five. I do this show from Texas. I think most of our listeners know that. And in Texas, the, one of the premier universities is University of Texas. It's a massive schools in Austin and uh, you know, very well regarded, just a well-regarded undergrad and graduate programs. However, at Texas right now, they are doing orientation for the fall semester. So students are showing up now and they're going through an orientation, including the organizations they want to be involved with. They're just checking out the organizations. Well, one organization new on the UT campus is Turning Point USA, or they go by TPUSA. Their website describes them as a student movement for free markets and limited government. And they're the ones you often see in college campuses. They just put out tables and they stand around and hold up signs saying socialism sucks or whatever, some simple message like that. They're pretty much free marketers in favor of America and limited government. And so they're, they're not exactly an extreme group. But this year at UT, when the fresh incoming freshmen arrived for orientation, they were greeted by leftists on the UT campus holding up signs saying, stop pretending your racism is patriotism. And this organization, not an official UT organization, but yet an organization that is posting and people on campus are seeing it called Austin Autonomedia is basically threatening students saying, if you dare to join Turning Point USA or the other organization is Conservatives of Texas, YC, or Young Conservatives of Texas, YCT, we will dox you. We will write little blogs, send them out to everyone on campus with your name, your email, uh, your phone number, and we're going to tell them that you dared to associate with what they're calling haters. They're calling Turning Point USA and Young Conservatives of Texas uh, organizations that promote hate. And so these students, first time on campus, showing up to figure out what to join, you know, what organizations they might want to join, they're not only told this, they see these, but by the way, the protesters holding these signs, several of them have their faces covered because they're really brave, you see, standing up for what they believe in. So they have their faces covered, uh, real tough guys here, but they, their signs essentially say, stop pretending your racism is patriotism. On their blog, Autonomedia, and I'm going to spell that. It's A-U-T-O, auto, no, media. And, and I think maybe it's like a play and you ought to know about media, but ought to know media. In any case, it runs through. They actually have blogs posted about things they did last year when organizations had meetings on campus and they happen to have a fire drill during one of the meetings and they overhear conversations. They report them. They report who was there. They are threatening students with doxing because they want to join conservative organizations. This, my friends, is today's American left. It is not American, it is tyranny, it is a conduct that you would expect from a government that was trying to shut down its own citizens, and this is coming from students. 
Later in the show today, we're going to talk about what they might have watched in Washington that made them think this kind of thing was okay to do on a campus in America. And that, my friends, is today's First Five. I'm going to turn now, as I mentioned at the start of the show, we have a guest joining us online. Uh, I'm going to spend a minute telling you about him because he's because the topic is tender and deep and I don't want to have, I want to be sure everyone listening understands that this person we're going to be speaking to, Raymond um, Ibrahim, and we were talking before the show about saying names correctly, and so with a name like George Addis, I actually do care to try to say it correctly, but Raymond Ibrahim, he is a, a published author, a public speaker, Middle East and Islam um, specialist. His newest book is this, Sword and Scimitar. I'm holding up, if you're watching on podcast, you can see uh, Sword and Scimitar. 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. But a quick bit of detail about his background before I tell him or bring him on and tell you what I want to talk about. He is actually the, has a dual background. He was born and raised in the U.S. by Egyptian parents who, were, who themselves were born and raised in the Middle East. He grew up with equal fluency in English and Arabic. He has a deep understanding of Western and Middle Eastern mindsets. He is a public speaker spoken all over the country uh, in a wide variety of media outlets, uh, both liberal and conservative. Uh, he's guest lectured at many universities, including the National Defense Intelligence College of uh, the U.S. He's uh, briefed this, the U.S. Strategic Command and Defense Intelligence Agency. But the, the education I want to mention before we bring him on is this. He has a BA, a bachelor's and a master's in history, focusing on the ancient and, Middle East and medieval Near East, dual minors in philosophy, literature from California State University, Fresno. And there he actually studied with Victor Davis Hanson. I always tell you, he's like one of my favorite writers, great thinker. The most important thing is he took graduate courses at Georgetown, my school, my law school, but he also, um, he took courses at Georgetown Center for the Contemporary Arab Studies. Um, he studied medieval Islam, Semitic languages at Catholic University. He is a true student of being able to read Arabic, read original text in Arabic, a true student and uh, having firsthand knowledge of Middle East culture and his book, Sword and Scimitar. Uh, I really urge you to read it and it's just, it's not available on Amazon. And I'd like to bring him on and introduce, this is Raymond Ibrahim. Hi, Debbie. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Hello. Hi. So glad to see you. Glad you could join us. So I want to start with <laughs> my pleasure. Um, I want to start with you were scheduled to speak recently on June 19th at the United States uh, War College, U.S. Army War College in Pennsylvania. And this is, I think, a week ago today. Is that yeah, a week ago today, I think. And um, right. they well, I'm hoping you can just start with by telling our audience you were scheduled to speak what you're going to speak about, and then how your why and how your speaking invitation got withdrawn. Sure, Debbie. Uh, back in January, the War College reached out to me uh, by email and invited me to come give a lecture over my uh, most recent book, the one you mentioned, Sword and Scimitar, which is a military history. And uh, in the exchanges between the college and I, they, they were very enthusiastic and very much eager to bring me on. They thought the topic was perfect for their faculty, staff, etc. And anyway, long story short, I agreed and we locked in uh, last Wednesday, like you were saying a week ago, June 19th. Um, everything was fine until uh, May 28th, CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, and we can discuss their background in a bit. Um, Can't wait. Yeah, which uh, it's a group that presents itself as, you know, representing the you know Muslim community in America, but that actually has deep terrorist ties, including being a co-conspirator in the largest uh, is 
Islamic terrorist funding case, the Holy Land Foundation, and so forth. So we can talk about them. Anyway, they wrote a letter, and this letter was somewhat rational sounding and measured. It was about the deep disappointment of the Muslim community that they would invite a notorious Islamophobe, and I'm using their words, me, to come talk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And all that happened with that letter, it was sent to the heads of the U.S. Army War College. All they did is, once it hit the media, is call me and tell me that, you know what, don't worry, we're still on, and we're not even responding to that letter. And I said, okay, good. So then the next day, um, CARE and their allies, including um, that political activist Linda Sarsour, uh, her group, I think it's called Empower Change, they, they basically started a hysterical smear campaign uh, they put out a press release. They put out a, a petition asking Muslims to sign on. And the message was simply that I, who am of Egyptian heritage, uh, as you mentioned, both my parents, uh, am a racist, quote unquote, <laughs> and an ena- enabler of white nationalism, which is also which is already a humongous problem in the U.S. military. And that if they go ahead with my talk, I am going to radicalize the U.S. military to the point they're going to go out in the streets and start killing Muslims left and right. And it was just, it was so absurd. And yet, apparently, you know, maybe because of all the bad publicity or because there's a large Muslim community in that region, as, as the letters say and so forth, um, the War College in contact meeting, I think two days after that started, and they said, well, well, we're postponing it, but it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, care or anything. We've just decided <laughs> five months after we had settled on a date that one, and one week before it, they just basically decided randomly to postpone it. It's obvious what happened. It's it's basically a message to all, and it's unfortunate because um, this is this is being actually presented as unprecedented because usually this sort of thing happens and it's common, but it usually happens to you know at, at private uh, institutions and universities, liberal universities. But this is the War College. This isn't Berkeley that capitulated, and the people it capitulated to care, like I said, have are have you know our our friends and allies like such as the United Arab Emirates actually designate CARE by name as a terrorist organization. CARE by name for nations like that is right up there with ISIS and Al-Qaeda as being a terrorist group. Uh, the FBI can't have any formal contacts with CARE due to their duplicitous background and so forth, so that the War College of all places would capitulate on free speech on a topic of national security because a group like that, with that background, presents a guy like me with my ethnic background as a racist it's just on all fronts, pretty, um, pretty sad. Absurd, absurd. I mentioned one thing I meant to say in the intro about what the War College is. And just in a quick a summary way, the United States Army War College is a college that is intended to produce, to train our most, our, our higher level military people. It, it is designed, it's a graduate level instruction for senior military officers and civilians to prepare them for senior leadership positions and responsibilities. You have to be at least the level of colonel or lieutenant colonel to even apply is training America's future intelligence and military leaders. So that is who's sitting around at the War College. Plus I read the invitation that um, uh, Raymond made mention of a moment ago, and they were. This was a large event where he was going to be speaking to include students and people in the community and many military officials. It was going to be a, a stellar opportunity for Raymond to set forth what's in his book, which we're going to get to in a moment. But first, I want to go back, Raymond, and just talk about Care a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that Care has been designated a terror organization by some uh, by some countries, but Care, again, in America, is a Council on America-Islamic Relations 
My good friend, John Guandolo, who's been on the show many times, his basic, he's got a piece at his website just called Care is Hamas. And he makes a basic connection. Maybe, maybe you want to go ahead and do it. But if you would explain for our listeners, why is CARE viewed as, as affiliated with Hamas? It's supposedly you know, what they try to say. We're just this friendly group trying to help relations between, in America between Muslims and Americans. Well, among other things, the Holy Land Foundation, the U.S. versus the Holy Foundation case, revealed that money was being funneled to Hamas, which the U.S., of course, designates as a terrorist group, by CARE. And in that uh, in that same case, it was revealed that CARE is the front group for the Muslim Brotherhood. It's just a PR piece for uh, uh, the you know the oldest actual in modern times Muslim group from which uh, Al Qaeda and even ISIS eventually spawned out of from the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so they, there's a lot of there's a lot of connectors, and you know, every once in a while, a leading care member or so forth will get arrested for terrorist ties. Um, and I, you know, let's see, uh, in 2004, Care Northern Virginia Director Abdurrahman Alamudi pled guilty to terrorism-related financial and conspiracy charges, which resulted in a 23-year uh, federal prison sentence. So that sort yeah. of thing is constantly happening with Care and, and who they are. And like I said, the FBI is can't even communicate with this supposed civil rights group uh, because of their shady background. And that it's very telling, I think. It sure is. On the subject of care, I will tell you that this is so important because Americans hear the name care. I honestly think it may have been chosen to be uh, manipulative. It sounds like being nice. You know, we care. But right. care is truly. <laughs> really, but to be very clear, in America, care is an organization established in 1994 by the U.S. Muslim Brotherhood's Palestine Committee. The Palestine Committee was placed to be Hamas in America. So, Guandola's shorthand, care is Hamas, is about all you need to know. But if you want to read more, you can go to Understanding the Threat and read uh, John Guandola's, whatever it is, 10-page summary, connecting all the bad guys in care who are really affiliated with terror. And we in America, and frankly, because our media permits it, are duped into believing they are somehow a friendly organization uh, here to help. So, Back to this, so the reason, and I'm so glad you're able to join us, the idea that the United States Army War College, the, the college training our future military leaders, would not let you come and talk about the threat of radical Islam because of the conduct of CARE, which is Hamas, trying to prevent you and threaten or embarrass them. I'll do one more little point about the War College and turn to your book. You mentioned, I think this piece came off of your website, uh, the facts why the U.S. Army War College surrendered to care. And folks, you can find this on my website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org. But you mentioned that even after the Army College backed down and, and said, OK, OK, well, we're going to postpone, uh, Raymond. We're not going to have him come. Still care was complaining, saying postponing wasn't good enough. Can you elaborate on what that care had to say in response? Well, exactly. And it's, it's again, it goes with this progression from how they start formal and then they, you know, once they smell blood, they get really ugly. So in their original letter, which was very formal, they actually um, went so far as to say, if you let him speak, me, um, we only ask that at least after he's gone, you set up a time for us to come and give you counterpoints of what he said once I'm gone. And I said, that's fine. Moreover, when I in, in my last call with the War College, when, in my attempt to keep that date, June 19, and not Nixon, I said, Turn it from a lecture, it was supposed to be a lecture, turn it from that into a debate and care can bring whoever it wants to come talk with me uh, and argue with me, debate me about the history of Islam in the West. And they still wouldn't do that. And so the whole point is, 
you know, they just because they can't win in a debate, what they do is scream you know, racism and all these terms just to shut it down. And because they can't actually win in the war of ideas or actual free debate, open debate. Um, and it's and unfortunately, the War College actually accepted that. But as far as they're getting more aggressive. Um, so after the War College canceled altogether, instead of letting me speak and then and then uh, and his name is Jacob Bender. Jacob Bender is the head of the Philadelphia chapter of care. And in his letter, he wrote, you know, I'd be happy to come after Ibrahim and so forth. But now that they canceled it in his response where he gloats because the Army War College did what care wants, he yeah. then goes on and complains and says it's not enough because now you need to denounce Ibrahim, me, his racist views, quote unquote. And you need to bring in historians uh, from our side, essentially apologists to come and apologize about Islamic history and so forth. And so, as you can see, you know, they went from just asking, well, let us actually speak after him to now, even though it's been canceled, they're just going you know, full on because they've smelled weakness. And that's the whole point. You know, War College should have just completely ignored them. And that would have been the end of it. It sure is. And, you know, you mentioned the word racist. I wanted to throw this in is so odd how this whole Islamophobia thing gets argued as racism. Islam is not a race. It is a religion. Exactly. People of every background could choose if they want you to become. It doesn't anything to do with race, but that was such a buzzword that frightens people in our culture, sadly. And they think, well, I don't want to be called that. If they're saying I'm racist, it's just absurd to call you that. But I want, I want to jump ahead to your book. So again, the book we're talking about, we're speaking with the author. I'm so glad he could join us today. Raymond Ibrahim, it's Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between the Islam and the West. Let me just start with a big question, kind of, what is the point you've written and you've spoken extensively about uh, about Islam and the dangers of Islam and the, the content of the Quran and other sources that lay out the danger that or the kind of ideology of Islam. So what is the point of this book? The point of this book is, you know, as you said, there's so many books I've written and others have written and articles and most of them that take an anti-Islamist approach, anti-Sharia approach. What they do is they highlight Quran verses, statements of Muhammad. They basically look at doctrine. And I personally think that's effective. The only problem is we're living in a day and age where, you know, this postmodern relativism has taken hold of so many people's minds so that when you say a scripture says X, Y and Z, Lots of people will say, so what? You know, it could mean anything. You can interpret it any way you want. Well, look at how many sects of Christians use the same Bible. Look at, you have Orthodox and Reformed Jews, and they use the same sources and so forth. So I don't think that's resonating very much with certain segments of the population. But when you document history, now this isn't, I don't quote the Quran, I don't quote Muhammad, except maybe in a couple of pages in the intro. Um, but you look at over 352 pages, and you see documented Muslims speaking like and acting like ISIS, except on an exponential scale. And it's from oftentimes from Muslim sources, including items I translated, and also from uh, European contemporary sources, primary sources, essentially. Um, you, it's hard to argue against that and then say, well, Islam means peace, because you're going to see over a millennium bombardment on Europe that went in uh, always in the name of jihad, always in the same exact pattern. People don't know that the things that ISIS says, like we've tasted American blood and there's none sweeter, is taken verbatim from the early heroes of jihad in their first encounter with the West, Byzantium or the Eastern Roman Empire in the year 636, which is the first battle I look at. Uh, so I wanted to document what really happened, which is a lot harder to do than quote, you know, the same dozen scriptures and doctrines of Islam. And I think it's very ironclad. And I think that's why CARE 
who you would think would normally go it would go after me if I was talking about a contemporary, you know, modern day Islamist machinations and, and subversion in the U.S. You would think that would get their ears. But this got them, even though it's a military history that deals with events from hundreds and some over a thousand years ago, because it just shows an unwavering picture of Islam that contradicts the current fashionable pseudo history, which says Islam was progressive in the middle in the in the pre-modern era, whereas Europe wasn't. And therefore, if they hate us now, and that was a big question after 9-11, why do they hate us? It's because something went wrong. It can't be Islam itself. It must be economics. It must be grievances, land disputes, et cetera, et cetera. You look at the book, though, the hate was there from day one. There was no need for any pretext. It was just jihad. That's what they said. That's what they quoted. And that's how they acted. And there's no way of getting by that. The book has over a thousand citations endnotes like i said a lots of primary sources so there's no debating that for care all they can do is just shut it down so raymond to be clear you read and write arabic i mean you read and and can understand and speak arabic so you can when you say go original sources you're reading them yourself is that correct right uh, you mean by primary you know, sources first, yeah well primary sources i mean the the are the oldest sources eyewitness accounts Sometimes they're English, and I just quote the actual English translation. Sometimes they're in Arabic. Nobody translated it. I translate it or provide a fresher translation. Um, but by primary sources, I, here's the difference. A secondary source is what Karen Armstrong writes about history, and it's a bestseller. You go read it, and, and someone who, who, like me, reads it, and I'm thinking, where on earth does she get all this? She just skipped 1,000 years of Islamic terror and immediately, or 500 years of Islam and jumps to the Crusades she presents in a vacuum and now all of a sudden the crusaders look like they're the ones who were going on the offensive and violent when in fact they were uh, finally responding to four centuries of jihadi attacks um yeah i can't wait to get that point i want to go back and say uh, one other thing about your comment about uh people taking language out of the quran the other problem when people quote the quran even though i've read many things that do it is written in the in it is not in, even as translated, not in modern language, and you can't understand exactly what it means. And so it's, it's very easy, susceptible to people saying, well, you're just, you're just saying that, you know, Jew behind, hiding behind a tree means this or that. There's, there, it is a, not just the Quran, but many of would consider authoritative Islamic texts are just not written, and we would consider as plain, modern, plain spoken English. And so it's very hard to argue. I mean, you have to be really immersed in it and determined to get to the, to the meaning of it to even extract the message of, of, of the Quran. But I guess I'm going to summarize one thing you were saying and then try to move to some other things. But... You're essentially saying you recounted the history, and this, this book, by the way, folks, is it actually, for all the depth and substance it reads, it's a very comfortable, it's a serious and substantive read, but it's a very comfortable read. You can get through it and enjoy it, but it runs through the history of Islam pretty much since the beginning, the founding by Muhammad, of, all, of the basic notion that the, it is the ideology of Islam itself that implants the idea in the followers of Islam that they must engage essentially in conquest Islam. They must engage in an effort to kill or convert infidels. Their, their duty as a, as, a, as a devout Muslim is to force, ultimately, force Islam on the world. And so all we're seeing today in the current jihadist attacks and the, and the other violence we're seeing is the ongoing carrying out of what the Quran originally said at the start. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Um, okay. And what, you know, some of the interesting finds in the book 
is uh, I'll give you an example. So modern day historians don't talk about, they don't think religion motivates anyone. So they'll write from a nationalist lens. And so you may read about the Arab conquests or you'll read about the Turkish or the Ottomans or the Seljuks. You might read about the Berbers or the Tatars, the Mongols. And never will you find anything about Islam. And you'll think these are all different groups waging war against Europeans and themselves and so forth. And all of a sudden, um, the Islam ideology component is out. But when I did the research, and again, by looking into these deeper sources, you find that whether in its Arab or its Berber manifestation or its Persian manifestation, Turkic manifestation, Mongol, Tatar manifestation, all these supposedly disparate groups that spoke different languages, when they, when you look at what motivated them, it was always Islam. They quoted from the, the same Quran. They uh, quoted the same jihad imperative, the need to conquer the infidel, give them three choices, convert, pay jizya, so forth, or fight to the death. And so I thought that was very telling that you see the underlying current behind all these different civilizations, and you never get this from modern textbooks, was the same motivation that ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab and Hamas and all these groups are still citing to this day. And I thought it's very interesting for people to see the continuity this is an ongoing thing. It's not because of some modern, uh, as I said, modern day grievance or, or however it's often presented. It's actually internal and intrinsic to Islam. And that's, again, that's what the book demonstrates. It, most of the book are, isn't my words. It's just large quotes from, mod, from eyewitnesses, people who participate in battles, uh, well-known uh, scholars, modern day scholars and, and their findings. So it's very hard to get by. And I think, like I said, that's why the best way for certain groups like uh, CARE is just to suppress it altogether. I was going to say, this is very scary for CARE because it takes away a lot of the arguments that the modern day Islamic apologists and leftists uh, in our country make. That Islam is a religion of peace, is the argument. And then, of course, the idea that jihadists are perverting Islam and real Islam is peaceful. And so I know you get asked this a thousand times, but jihadists are not perverting Islam. They're practicing it. Is that accurate? Of course. Uh, and, and again, the, the book will make that perfectly clear, because if they've been saying and behaving in the same way for almost 14 centuries, you know, what other way could there be? How, you know, who are we to say that's not the right way? That's that is the way it's documented. Uh, there's no getting around that. Okay, then I want to hit this point that I, I really, I, I found your book, and I've read a lot of stuff. I get a little bit wonky. I love to read, uh, but I really found your um, description of the idea of Muhammad managing to deify the concept of tribalism that, and you were alluding to a little bit earlier about people thinking that various uh, battles over history were on the, on the behalf of the Turks or some other uh, national group. But Muhammad was able to get the idea of tribalism embedded in the minds of its follow, his followers by just dividing them into you're either a good Muslim or you're part of everybody else and you're a bad guy. Can you elaborate on that? I thought that was the, the really insightful point. Thank you. Well, basically, my theory is that uh, so in the seventh century, Muhammad, you know, Arabian civilization then and now, arguably, of course, was very tribal. Um, so what Muhammad did is he's, you know, and I, I say this coming from a non-Muslim point of view, I don't believe in the prophethood of Muhammad. And so what he did as a man is created a religion that very much comports with tribal mores. So you basically, for example, in Islam, one of the biggest divisive doctrines in Arabic, it's called al-wala' wal-bara'. I usually translate it to mean loyalty and enmity. And it's all around in the Quran, and Muhammad said it, and it basically means that every Muslim must side and be loyal to a fellow Muslim, no matter, you know, color or race or anything like that. 
And every Muslim must have hatred in their heart for non-Muslims, no matter, again, if they're the same race or if they're even family members. In fact, the Quran says, even if they're family members, you have to hate them. Um, the, in, in, and this is again in the Quran. Now, if you look at tribalism historically, that's exactly what the tribe does. It, to be part of the tribe is to be actually accepted as a human being and treated with any uh, degree of civility. To be out of the tribe, no matter what you did, you don't have to do anything wrong. You are the enemy. You exist to be plundered, killed, and enslaved. This is the tribal mentality. So I think in creating those doctrines, he very much deified the tribalism that he was living in. And, you know, this is further proven by the fact that you look at all the large population national groups that became Islamic, virtually all of them were tribal in essence before that. And so, again, you can see how Islam and its teachings were appealing because all the mechanisms were already there. And that includes the Berbers, the Turks, the Mongols. These are the major groups who, other than the Arabs, became yep. Islamic. So, and uh, yeah, so that's why it still continues to live to this day, and it still resonates with the tribal mentality. Okay, you alluded. Uh, I love that. Thank you. That's a great explanation. You alluded to uh, earlier. I want to just embellish a little bit. A lot of what happened after 9/11 happened, and I think for many Americans, it was the first time we ever even had any serious contemplation of what. Islam is, why would they do this to us? And many of the answers were things like, well, we stole their oil, we did some other, some other bad things. But the, the, the kind of deeper answer, people thought they were being deeper, saying, well, look at the Crusades. I mean, Christians are bad too, Christians did bad things. And it has taken reading your book and one other one I read that it really uh, crystallized uh, and, and helped me see more clearly the idea that the Crusades were a, a, a you know, broadly speaking, a defensive pushback by Christians in Europe and other places against what had been Islamic aggression to start with. Can you put the the uh, Islamic conquest versus uh, the Crusades in historical context? Okay, and here's your uh, test in three minutes or less. <laughs> no, but can you just put that? Sure, sure. <laughs> sure, so basically Islam explodes on Christendom right around the year 636 wages jihads, articulates it as jihad in their own texts. And before long, three quarters of what was once called Christendom, in fact, the older and richer portion, was permanently conquered by Islam. And so we forget today that all of North Africa, from Morocco to Egypt, Southwest Asia, Syria, and, and so forth, and also Turkey or Anatolia, that was the, the, the heart of Christ, Christianity in the seventh century. And that's actually where four of the five ecclesiastical seas were located, all of which got conquered by the Islamic world. In fact, the, the and until it went into Tours, the Muslim forces went deep into France, um, and they also in the east, the Turks much later went as deep as Vienna, but it even went further than that by boats and raids. They went all the way to Iceland. Uh, America's first war as a nation before it could elect its first president, Washington, was with Muslim Barbary pirates who were enslaving Americans and quoting the Quran to Jefferson to validate their hostility. Um, so this is what went on constantly in the Crusades. Like you, uh, it's after all that large territory of Christendom was conquered, and then most recently Anatolia, now the Seljuk Turks, after the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, for two decades were terrorizing Asia Minor, which is one of the oldest Christian regions where St. Paul wrote all his letters. They were literally, according to sources, killing and burning alive and enslaving hundreds of thousands of Christians. Thousands of churches were being turned into mosques or, um, or, or other things and being burned. And it was that was actually what the emperor, uh, the Byzantine emperor, called on to Pope Urban for some help. And that's exactly what Pope Urban said in his uh, speech at Clermont. 
he basically pointed out all the attacks that are happening by the, this group of people that's been attacking us for centuries, and now we have to go and help. But again, you see, without all of this context, you know, it, it's presented always in a vacuum, as if things were wonderful. Islam just spread, happened to in a few centuries, and then all of a sudden, you know, Crusaders and Franks, mean Europeans and mean Christians decided to come and ruin it all and attack them, and that's just completely absurd. I am so grateful for all the research you did and your historical knowledge because that, when you can decimate that argument about the Crusades and, and, and all of that about, I, I think it really helps uh, people be more willing to recognize that what we're facing in America and really around the world is Islamic aggression that was the same thing that was happening in Europe, has been happening since, since Islam was founded. And I'm going to go back to one of the point you were making about this. Uh, how the idea of tribalism uh, was deified, how you could divide people into uh, us and them uh, in terms of being uh, adherent of Islam or not. But Islam is more than, was teaching more, not just that, you know, we're the good guys and the bad ones, but they were also, the a core idea of Islam is, it is the duty of the devout Muslim to engage in the effort to kill or convert infidels. It is the duty of jihad to spread Islam around the world. And can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I think that people have the sense maybe it's just a, a few kind of wild hairs today doing things, but actually isn't it intrinsic in the teaching of Islam that's part of this, because of this dichotomy of the, that you're either Muslim or you're the bad guys, that you, um, that you must attempt to spread Islam. Is that right? That is right. And when, when, when Islamic apologists come and tell you that the Arabic word jihad doesn't mean armed warfare, it means struggle. Yeah. They're actually absolutely right. But if anything, that only convicts them more. Because sure, armed struggle is one aspect. It's the primary historical aspect. Because in the pre-modern world, unless you could beat someone, they weren't going to fall for your tricks. But in the modern era, it is a struggle. And so groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, their front care, they engage in what in Islamic jurisprudence is known as jihad of the tongue, which means propaganda, jihad of the pen, which again is another form of propaganda. Uh, they engage in, uh, lots of Muslims engage in jihad of the money, which means funding Islamic terror groups and so forth. So yes, uh, Muslims are to help enable and empower Islam any way they can, but it doesn't have to be through G physical force, though that's been the historic main primary manifestation. Nowadays, especially in the West, it's more insidious and it's being done through all the, you know, in the guise of civil rights groups who are actually just engaged in Islamic propaganda and trying to demoralize the West and so forth. All of that is part of the jihad and completely considered uh, consistent with the teachings of Islam. That one term I've heard used for that is cultural or civilizational jihad. It's engaging in the, the right. effort of jihad, but it, it, is that right? Yes, in fact, yeah. that's in the Muslim Brotherhood captured documents. They refer yeah. to it as a civilizational jihad to sabotage the miserable West of its uh, spirit and so forth. Yeah. Well, then to loop back to the start of our interview, we were talking about your um, intended appearance a week ago today at the U.S. Army War College. There is some effort to put pressure on the leaders of the War College to change their mind. Is that right? I saw there was a... Um, National yeah. Association of Scholars effort to get President Trump to try to weigh in. Is that right? Right, right. I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised. I didn't expect that. But the uh, association, National Association of Scholars, so a large group of uh, scholars all around America who care about free speech and you know free inquiry and so forth, did write an open letter um, 
address to President Trump about actually a intervening in this particular situation, but also just being aware that it's really getting bad. And I think that's the more dangerous precedent. It's not just about that one incident. It's just if it gets to this point where a guy like me can be called a racist by terrorists, uh, even though I'm often I, I look more ethnic than they do, but, uh, <laughs> Jacob, yeah. ben, Jacob Bender, you know. Um, and as you said, I don't talk about race. Uh, I'm, again, I'm of the same ethnicity as most Muslims. I talk about ideology and history. And so for them to so shamelessly kind of play that game up and then for the War College of all people to fall for it and uh, capitulate to that, that's pretty unprecedented, I think. And it should, it's, cause, uh, it's, it's enough cause to be alert to. Yeah, and for the, uh, I guess in closing, Jay, for the War College, who has America's future military leaders sitting there, future other leaders, and and people dedicating their lives to the military in some way, to have them decide that those people don't need to understand the history you laid out in this book about is that of, of Islamic conquest from the time of the founding of Islam, all the depth of, of your explanation um, about the mindset or the worldview of Islam, to not have those people who are going to be creating America's foreign policy understand what you're saying is the most Orwellian of all of all things. And, and to have the group that silenced you be the ones who actually are part of this Islamist mission is just, it, it's kind of, it's, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm hardly ever speechless. I'm speechless. I cannot believe they, they succeeded in doing that. So I hope you win this fight. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Debbie. Appreciate it. Appreciate it so much, too. Thank you so much, Raymond Ibrahim. Raymond Ibrahim, again, Sword and Scimitar, uh, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. Great, great book. Got to read it. Okay, I'm going to turn to two quick stories. You know, this, if I had a theme for today, it's kind of the idea that we have a very, very strident, tyrannical leftist mindset in this country at UT, where they're trying to threaten freshmen when they come to sign up for their freshman courses and organizations they want to join, uh, being told that we're going to dox you, and they said, which is essentially threatening them. You have the uh, the Muslim really aggression toward this author who's spelling out historical truth about Islam and Islamic conquest, preventing him from speaking at the war college. And these two next stories I want to hit very quickly again on the tyranny of the American left. One is that of all kinds of groups, I, I call this the knitters and spitters, there is apparently, who knew, a national organization of people who like to knit, as in, you know, knit one, pearl two, knit. And they have a website and they have members and people get involved and share patterns and ideas and colors and whatever else, I don't know. Anyway, um, it turns out the people who run this group are leftists and they are so left-wing minded that they decided they are going to shut down and make unwelcome in their group anyone who supports President Trump. These are knitters. It has nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with economics, nothing to do with anything except people who have happened to enjoy the hobby of knitting. It's called Ravelry, R-A-V-E-L-R-Y.com. They've apparently had other little uh, tussles inside this group before this that relate to, uh, you know, you can't do things that are offensive. And so, you know, conser only conservative speech is offensive. Liberal stuff can go on all day long. But they've now actually uh, formally announced via tweet they're not going to permit Trump supporters to put anything up on their site. Or they, they're just trying to get rid of, to shut down Trump supporters. It turned out of all surprising things, Michelle Malk and the stellar uh, American commentator, she's part of this group, and she's saying, are you kidding me? So that was one, that's the knitters and the spitters. 
just to see the level of irrational outrage the American left has managed to stir up in America's culture, simply breathtaking. The Secret Service had to arrest a waitress in Chicago because Eric Trump, President Trump's son, went in the restaurant with some other colleagues for whatever he was doing up there on business, goes into this restaurant, and this waitress who's never met him before in her entire life walked right up to Eric Trump, President Trump's son, and spit at him, spit in his face. Secret Service is there, they arrest her and, and take her out of there. I just want you to think about what that represents about American society. We have a young woman who's a waitress. I mean, she's supposed to be waiting tables and deciding that she is morally justified. It's justified for her to spit in the face of the son of the president of the United States. Frankly, spit in the face of anybody just because you don't like their politics or you think you don't like his father or you think you don't like whatever it is you think the president represents and you could be completely ill-informed. But this woman did that, got arrested by Secret Service, spent, I think she spent a night in jail. Eric Trump decided not to press charges and so they let her go. But it's just a little window again on, on American culture. The left has managed to stir up irrational outrage in the students at UT and this waitress in Chicago. And even among this knitting group, they're, they're, they're embracing the idea as CARE is trying to sell, same idea, CARE was talking about, uh, talking about with Raymond Ibrahim, Ibrahim's book, trying to sell the idea Anyone who doesn't agree with us, anyone who dares to have an opinion that does not agree with the American left must be shut down, mocked, ridiculed, threatened, name called because no one's allowed to agree with the left. That is the message, the tyrannical message of the American left today. No one can speak unless we have approved. We are entitled to shut them down, threaten them with doxing, all the things we just talked about because they dare to think something we don't think. The left in this country is the home of intolerance and tyranny must be stood up against. Last quick story, I, I talked about the other day about Google. And, you know, Google is continuing to get a, an extreme amount of attention uh, because of the uh, little video that, fortunately for America, Project Veritas secretly recorded a very high-level executive at Google basically saying they're adjusting their search, their algorithms, their machine learning. They're adjusting the results you will find in a search to make sure that President Trump doesn't get reelected, to direct your searches to, to sites, to information, to people, to organizations that they consider more fair. So they're going to, and they're very, very threatening about the idea of what it is that Google will do to eventually, I want you to think about what Google is saying. Google is saying, because they don't like conservatives, they don't like President Trump, they don't like his policies, and because they happen to be the tiny little cabal that runs Google, they have the right to shape a presidential election. They feel entitled to shape a presidential election. They were, this woman blathering away when she didn't know she's being recorded, feels entitled to shape search results to get to the point where they think they can shift this election. They had one expert, some research psychologist who was um, interviewed, uh, a guy named Epstein, who said he thinks that in 2020, Google could flip it in the range of 15 million votes. Folks, this is, this is the left unable to defend their viewpoints, unable to defend their positions, unable to articulate their positions, unable to, to convince America why their positions are better than somebody else's positions. So their answer is, 
shut down anyone who won't agree with us. Google is joining that left-wing tyrannical world, and they must, as I will tell you in just a moment when we get to our Wyatt Marist you, they must be exposed and stopped. But this is a very dangerous time we live in, folks, because you think about Google for a moment. If you're not paying attention to politics, I'm gonna guess people listening to my show would, but if you do Google searches, and you're not really very political, and you ask, what's the situation at the border, or something like that, and you get back answers that say that President Trump is unnecessarily and cruelly separating children from parents, and there's no justification, and uh, children are dying, and I mean, all the left-wing spiel without the context and the facts that people who are informed know, you're gonna think, well, geez, that sounds terrible. I should vote against that. Well, that times a thousand issues, Google has the ability to control what America understands and what America thinks. There needs to be some, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, use some other search engine, and it's an, but it's another whole thing to really have America, to have our government look at the idea of breaking up Google, of just saying they can't exist as this monolithic Pravda-like, Russia Pravda thought control-like entity out of the control of the federal government. We're gonna get in tomorrow a little bit about the ways it could go, get at that, but I'm out of time today to do that. There are some ideas we can think about with respect to Google, but it is a, it's, it's all of a, the same mindset, that left-wing, tyrannical, nobody's allowed to agree with us, we're entitled to shut you down, we get people outraged and, and angry and feeling entitled to shut down other Americans. Not okay in America. And now, my friends, we're going to turn to our Why It Matters to. I try to do every week. I talk about the stories. There are always more stories than time, but the stories every day really always get down to the question of, and I want to be sure and share with you why I think they matter to America's future and therefore why they should matter to you. The left's, left's doxing culture. UT left-wingers who dox fellow UT students are interested in turning, uh, um, students interested in Turning Point USA, which is very mainstream, by the way, they are threatening people. Doxing means making people worried that they're gonna show up in your room or send you threatening emails or call you and leave scary messages. They want to make you afraid to join the organizations you wanna join. These UT lefty doctors feel entitled to be outraged, to bully and threaten other students merely because they don't agree with them. Radical turnarounds needed in America's culture and campuses. Grown-ups must take charge. Freedom of speech and robust exchange of ideas matter in America. The left's doxing culture, mobs, threats, intimidation, doxing against political opponents is intolerant, tyrannical. It has no place in America. When Dem leaders, and I'm going to pick on just one here, Maxine Waters, who went out of her way numerous times urging people to get confrontational in public. If you see someone who supports Donald Trump, get in their face in a restaurant, wherever you are, scream at them, yell at them, embarrass them. She is urging Americans to bully each other, to threaten each other, to make other people feel unsafe to, if they dare to disagree with her, Maxine Waters' views. She's urging Americans to confront political opponents in public, blah, blah. Almost no one criticized her when she did that. And her actions and her words, along with others in Washington, encourage this irrational outrage we are seeing about CARE and the Army War College and why it matters to you. The simplest starting point in of national defense is you have to know your enemy. We're on the next slide here. Um, you have to know your enemy. Um, and the U.S. Army War College trains future military and other leaders for our country. They train our future leaders. 
Yet fear of offending an Islamist organization, a Hamas-affiliated CARE, caused the Army War College to cancel a speaker whose work spells out in plain English the threat Islamists present to America's safety. Disinviting a scholar from speaking at the Army War College about the danger to America of the Islamist worldview because Islamists don't want our future leaders to hear this truth is all by itself a surrender to Islamism. This decision by the Army War College must be reversed. Next slide on this Trump derangement, knitters and spitters. Okay, it was kind of cutesy, but it rhymed. Anyway, the knitters, even knitting groups are getting taken over by leftists who do not tolerate anybody thinking anything they have not authorized. Banning, shunning people whom you disagree politically. Another example is of the mindset of the American left, the tyrannically intolerant American left. Even among knitters, how will we ever have discourse and the spitter in the Chicago restaurant, spitting on the son of the president for no reason except he's a son of the president. This is the entitled to be outraged moral idiocy of today's leftism. Intolerance lives on the American left. Tell your friends, indulging this intolerance will hurt our culture and our country. Last slide, Google and the American elections and why it matters to you. Tampering with American elections should be opposed by all Americans. Google has effectively admitted it intends to tamper with the 2020 U.S. elections. If they control what you learn online, they control what you believe, and therefore how you vote. This is modern, this is a modern incarnation of Pravda, the Soviet-style propaganda. Support breaking up Google. Any legal action possible, criminal or civil, should be taken, used, and we, on our side, need to use some other search engine. My friends, this is America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Thank you so much for tuning in every day, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, where I always talk truth about America and I speak up about America because America matters. Talk to you tomorrow. America, can we talk truth about America? Can